0: again we're talking about covenant salvation at the beginning of these classes way back i think in september i said j.i. packard made a comment that to understand covenants is to understand the bible's uh, story of salvation so having traced that story through the covenants we have two figures that come to the forefront that's adam and christ and both are covenant kings or federal heads so the priority of every human being is to move from being in adam to being in christ but how does this happen Uh, So, an answer might go something like this, through the covenant of grace, if we repent and believe God's good news of a rescuer king, we are united to Jesus and all his blessings. And that is absolutely 100% true. If we ask... Though another simple question, why does one person get saved but the other one doesn't? Well, we just say something along the lines, which again is true because one believes and trusts in God while the other doesn't. And that's as true as far as it goes, but we really haven't gone as deeply into this doctrine as is necessary. So most Christians are clear that we are saved by grace, that is we're saved by God, but they're less confident in affirming that we are saved by grace alone or by God alone. Now, me personally, I grew up thinking, you know, Jesus has died for everyone's sin, but you or I still need to believe. And I saw it more as a cooperative effort. Jesus did the hard work, that is, he lived the righteous life, he went to the cross, but I had to decide whether or not to uh, accept that or not on my own accord, because God won't force me to believe, uh, because that wouldn't be loving or respectful. So I kind of I wouldn't say this, but I kind of had this mentality that God did 99% of the work, but I had this little 1% or so to do. So it was my job to transfer myself from being in Adam to being in Jesus, and that was accomplished by my faith. But this is, I, I mean, this, and I'm kind of following this book, uh, Covenants Made Simple by uh, uh, John T. Rhodes, chapter 9. He's kind of, I'm kind of just summarizing this, this, this chapter. He kind of finds three problems with that view. The first one is pastoral. It kind of robs us of our assurance, our confidence that we'll be saved. If it was up to me to put myself in Christ... Then it's presumably up to me to put myself back in Adam again, and that is totally me growing up. I mean, I was always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I lost my salvation, gained my salvation, lost it again. Uh, it was just a it was just a roller coaster ride for me all the time. The second problem is theological. It robs God of his glory. Salvation is no longer by God alone. That is, by grace alone. The credit for me ending up in heaven is shared. That is, I'll thank God for sending Jesus. We'll thank Jesus for dying. But then I'll kind of pat ourselves on the back for believing and realizing that it's all true. And the third problem is practical. If this uh, 1% or whatever it is rests on believers' hands, then there's really no point in praying for them. If God's done all that he can do, then he can't do anymore. It's totally up to the person to believe. God would, in essence, be saying, well, his or her heart is in his or her hands. I've done my little bit, and the rest is up to them. After all, I don't want to violate their free will. So what does moving from being in Adam to being in Christ, and how does this covenant story kind of help us understand our salvation? So each of the three persons of the Trinity play their part in ensuring that the transfer is really by God alone. So the first step is unconditional love. The Father chooses a people. The first point at which we are moved from Adam to Christ is something that really happens outside of time. Um, It's something that that God does for us. In Ephesians 1, 3-6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. It's God who chooses who will become his sons and daughters. Election or predestination, whatever term you want to use, happens uh, at some time before the universe ever came into existence. God's choosing happens in him, that is in Jesus, in union with Christ. God decided long before Adam fell who would be moved from Adam into Christ. And it's not just Paul who taught this, but John in Revelation 13.8 also speaks of this. He says, that when speaking of the first beast, he said, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Luke in Acts 13.8, 13.48, I mean, after ending his account of the evangelistic meeting, says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And Jesus himself even said this in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day and he often refers to believers as those who the father has given them as in john 6:37 or 10:29 so god's election is totally unconditional there's nothing special about me or those chosen that marks them out there's therefore no reason to feel superior to those who are not chosen this is not a doctrine to make one proud but to make one humble nor does God look through time to see who will choo- who will choose them and then elect them based on their choice. Sometimes people try to evade the Bible's clear teaching on election by shifting the responsibility from God to humans. But if God is somehow just recognizing our choice, then in what sense can we even be said that He is choosing us at all? Again, it kind of opens up those three problems again that we talked about earlier. And this also contradicts scripture. And again, we see in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And in Ephesians 1.5 again, he says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So again, the first step in being in Christ is God choosing you. His love and grace are utterly unconditional. If he chose you before the universe existed, then you did nothing to earn it. And if you did nothing to earn it, then you're not in danger of unearning it. Salvation is by grace alone, and God, in this case, the Father alone. And the second step is personal love. The Son dies for his people. Jesus dies for those whom the Father elected and loved before time. Again, John 10, 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And this is the second moment when you are moved from being in Adam to being in Christ. In the mysteries of God, and this is a mystery, Jesus is united to the covenant-breaking sheep that the Father had given him. He dies under the curse. Jesus not only died for us, but we also died with Christ. And we see that in Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And again, Colossians 2:20 says, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental, elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still living in this world, do you submit to his regulations? And it goes on to describe uh, a lot of legalistic things that are going on in Colossae at the time. Therefore, the answer to the question, for whom did Christ die, is not every single person who has ever lived, but rather only for those whom the Father chose. Jesus' death is both personal and powerful. In the sense of being personal, when Jesus said he would lay down his life for his sheep, whom was he talking about? Again, I'm going to quote John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Sheep are those given to Jesus. And now, so far, in theory, this could mean everyone. Perhaps the Father gave every single person to Jesus. But again, we read a little farther, we see that they will, have, they will arrive safely in heaven through all the trials and temptations of life, and the sheep will follow Jesus and listen to them as their master. So in summary, we see that the sheep for whom Jesus died are those given to him by the Father, will definitely go to heaven, and they're following Jesus. This can't be a description of everyone everywhere. The sheep are Christians, the same group that the Father chose, whose names are written in the Book of Life. Jesus died to take the curse not for every single person without exception, but for His church. So we see Jesus' death is personal. If you're a Christian. He was dying for you, not just for sin in some general sense, because sin doesn't exist apart from a sinner. So when Jesus bears the covenant curses and takes the punishment for sin, he is taking the punishment for particular sinners, those given to him in the covenant of redemption. So if you're someone who is following Jesus, that is a sheep, then Jesus knows you now, and he knew you when he was bearing the curse for you. Jesus' love for you is personal, which is great news. Much better than just dying for sins in some general sense and then heading back to heaven to see what would happen. But it means that Jesus wasn't dying for everyone. For the atonement to be personal, it has to be particular. And not only that, but Jesus' death is powerful. Notice when the angel appeared to Joseph, he told him the name, uh, uh, the name that, uh, that Jesus was to be named. For he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. Not might... But will save them. The Bible is full of verses that talk about the cross, the place where salvation is achieved. First Peter 3:18, for Christ also suffered, that is, died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus' death does everything that it needs doing in order for us to be brought to God. Again, John 19:30, as he died, he said, "It is finished," and that's mission accomplished. He actually saved his people. He didn't just make salvation an option for those who are spiritual or smart enough or theologically astute enough or whatever to believe. If his death did the work to reconcile his people to God, he couldn't have been dying for everyone without exception or else everyone would be saved. This can kind of come as a shock, as it did for me when I first learned these things. But there are several points to ponder. Let's assume Hitler... Uh, never uh, repented of his sins before he died, he never made a profession of faith later in life, then did Jesus die for his sin? If so, on what grounds can he refuse Hitler entry into heaven? God is just, so he can't punish sins twice. We know that Jesus died for people like Abraham and Moses who lived before him, but trusted God's covenant gospel without knowing all the details. They were therefore in heaven already when Jesus died. But did Jesus die for the sins of those who lived before him and were already in hell by the time he was crucified? Another thing to ponder is we've seen that the Father chooses some, but not all. And we will see that the Holy Spirit in the next section will give life to some, but not all. Would it make sense for Jesus to be kind of the odd one out? Would he die for people knowing that the Father hadn't chosen them and that the Holy Spirit wouldn't regenerate them and give them faith? Again, we see in John ten thirty. he says, I and the Father are one, as one in purpose and one in uh, intent. It seems that the three persons of the Trinity always work together. Jesus was not on some solo mission going against the will of the Father and the Spirit. If the Father and the Spirit choose, then so does the Son. And I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Why should it be that we are happy to choose our own wives, but we are unwilling that Christ be allowed the same privilege? Sometimes this doctrine is called limited atonement, which is really not a great name for it. It makes it kind of sound like the cross isn't as effective as it should or might have been. Therefore, particular, definite, or effectual atonement or redemption are probably better names for it. But whatever it's called, it does reduce the number of people for whom Christ died. If you're thinking that this somehow undermines Jesus' work, then remember that uh, if you claim Jesus died for everyone, you will also have to limit the cross too in some sense, and this usually involves limiting the power of his death. If he died for everyone, and we know that not everyone is saved, then Jesus' death can't in it, in and of itself, have saved anyone, but only makes salvation possible. You need to add something to Jesus's work in order to gain the salvation. Jesus basically opened the door, but something else gets you through that door. But both see uh, we, I'm sorry, uh, both see Jesus's death as necessary, but not sufficient in and of itself. And this seems to be kind of a far worse kind of limiting. So those who believe in particular atonement aren't denying the value of Jesus' sacrifice to be sufficient to save everyone. Is the Son of God giving his life, what, what could be more valuable? Rather, the debate is over the intention of the cross. Who did Jesus come to save? Important because who would be comfortable with the idea of Jesus failing to complete the task he set out to do? If he was trying to die for everyone, and yet not everyone ends up saved, then Jesus is only kind of a semi-successful Savior who is thwarted by some greater power, which kind of begs the question, what else might he have failed in doing? However, Jesus is powerful, and he always wins at what he does. So when he died, he died in union with his people, those he was in covenant with. That is not the whole world, and he really does save them. So the atonement was particular. It was personal and powerful to save. Therefore, Jesus' love for you if you are a believer, is also personal and powerful too. So again, we see that salvation is by grace alone, and this time we got God the Son alone. And three, the unstoppable love of the Spirit who renews his people. So the third and final step in moving from Adam to being in Christ, this happens when the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus during your earthly life. God the Father chose you before the world began and gave you to Jesus. God the Son died in union with them nearly 2,000 years ago, and the day you believed, God the Holy Spirit linked you in your own experience to your covenant king. If you repent and you believe, you will have your sins forgiven and receive eternal life. Now again, this sounds like we're kind of going back to that 1% thing. If salvation is by God alone, as grace alone, then how can this be the case if I'm to repent and believe? This question kind of brings a resolution to kind of the tension that kind of runs throughout all these covenants. On the one hand, the covenant of grace is conditional at every stage. The condition being at every stage was to repent and believe the promises of God in whatever administration you're in. But on the other hand, God seems to be making assertions that are unconditional. For example, Abraham would would have an uncountable number of descendants and that heaven would be filled. So again, this kind of seems confusing until we understand Jesus' work in sending the Spirit. It is the Spirit who brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it is the Spirit who enables us to believe in Jesus and thus keep the covenant of grace. Paul says in Romans 3.11, No one seeks God in Ephesians uh, 2.1-2, which was read earlier, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By nature, we are basically spiritual zombies, physically alive but spiritually dead. And dead people don't choose to believe the gospel. In fact, dead people don't choose to do anything. If the gospel is offered to us to accept or reject on our own power, then none of us would believe. But thankfully, Jesus sends his spirit to bring dead people to life so that they can believe. John 6:6. 60 to 63 says, "It is the Spirit who gives life; the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So how can the covenant of grace be conditional and yet gracious? Because God Himself ensures that we fulfill the condition." Believing and repenting is not something God does for us, that is our, that is it is our responsibility, but God enables us to repent and believe and gives gives them as gifts. And we see that in Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Philippians one twenty nine, for it has been granted or gifted to you that you uh, that for your sake, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. Second, Second Timothy two twenty five. God may grant again gift them the uh, gift them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. The Holy Spirit loves us too much to let the decision to follow Christ to rest on our own hands. When He comes to give uh, new life, He is irresistible and efficacious so this is the final moment when we are united to jesus the holy spirit comes and makes us born again and fills us with the spirit of our covenant king and again salvation is by grace alone and That is god in this case the holy spirit alone so the gospel of grace and hope is says that if you're a christian then god has taken 100 percent ownership of your salvation all three members work together to move you from being in adam to being in Christ. The Father chose them in eternity, the Son died for them around 33 AD, and the Spirit today brings them to new life and gives them faith. So the gospel is trinity-shaped. All three members are working in harmony, but distinctly to ensure success, that those whom the Father chose, the Son would die for, and those whom the Son died for, the Spirit would renew and bring to life. So how does this, gospel, this covenantal gospel address the three problems we kind of mentioned earlier? Kind of the pastoral problem, assurance. If at any point of my salvation, that my salvation rests on me, I can never be sure I'll make it to heaven. My life would be kind of spent worrying if I dropped the ball at any time. But if it rest on God alone, I can relax and humbly rest and be confident that I will arrive safely because it is God who gets, gets me there. John 6:37 37-39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at all, of, uh, of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. You know, sometimes people ask the question, can a Christian lose their faith, or can a Christian lose their salvation? But I think a more biblical question would be, can Jesus lose a sheep? And obviously, the answer is no. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it also kind of answers that theological pr- question or problem about the glory of God. You know, again, one test that Paul uses to discover if someone has a biblical view of the gospel or not is kind of this principle of boasting. If your gospel allows you any room to say, "Well, well done, me," then it's really not the biblical gospel. Our salvation rests on Jesus, not on our own willingness to do God's. Uh, not our the, our salvation rests on Jesus', not our own willingness to go God's way, and fulfill the covenant promises, and take the covenant curses, and the blessings He earns as our covenant King come to us irresistibly. Second Corinthians one twenty says, "All the promises of God find their yes in Him." So is is it possible that God might choose someone and Jesus might die for them and then we ruin their whole plan by refusing to believe, by resisting the Holy Spirit? God doesn't respect our free will and leave leave us the power to resist. When God chooses unconditionally, Jesus dies personally and powerfully and the Holy Spirit gives life irresistibly, then all we can say is, to God alone be the glory. And it also kind of answers the practical problem about evangelism and prayer. If God is not fully and completely sovereign over salvation, there's really no point in praying. I mean, kind of, after all, there's a little more that God can do and try to arrange the circumstances so as to make it easier for someone to come to faith. But you really can't ensure that that happens. God basically just becomes a bystander while he s- sees what happens. Uh, but does a totally sovereign God, then, make prayer and evangelism pointless? If he knows who's going to be saved, why pray? Again, the simple answer, God says so. It's all over scripture. 1 Thessalonians 3.17, pray without ceasing. In some mysterious way, and again, this is a mystery and there's no way around it, God uses our prayers and evangelism as a means by which he brings people to faith. Despite being clear that God is completely in control of this universe and sovereign over salvation, Paul still encourages the Romans to evangelize. Romans 10:14 and 15 says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And again in Colossians, uh, Paul exhorts Colossians to continuously steadfast, be continuously steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for, this, for his word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So while we can't really understand how both are true, how the Bi- but the Bible unashamedly holds together this tension of both God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We are responsible people, and God is fully sovereign. We are to trust that God is sufficiently wise and intelligent, a sufficiently wise and intelligent creator to make a universe where we are responsible and not robots and yet he remains totally in control of our every decision therefore this also gives us confidence in prayer God is willing and able to change a person's heart from unbelief to faith and it also gives us confidence in evangelism knowing that in the bigger picture it will succeed God won't be thwarted by human sinfulness. Our job is to explain the message of the gospel, not engineer results. That's don't, don't give any pressure or manipulation. And As Christians, we are to be prom- promiscuous with the gospel, spreading it wherever we can, without and while leaving results to God. So basically, that's kind of the how the covenants kind of work in a nutshell and bring you into this covenant salvation. This is really what it basically explains basically having being in union with Christ. That's really what this whole thing is all about. It's kind of this covenant of redemption that God, uh, that inter-Trinitarian covenant that was made before time began, where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all work together to conspire and, and bring people to faith. The Father would give the Son a people of his own choosing. So that's really all I had. Um, Chris had, I don't know where he went. He'll be Bach. He'll be Bach. Anyway, um, that's all I had, so I don't know where Chris went, and he wanted to say something at the end here. So if he's, uh, if he's around, I don't know where he's at. But. Or you could, yeah, I think he was stepping out to the third and fourth graders to talk a little bit about the Trinity, so that should go quickly. Uh. Oh, great, great, great. Well, uh, there's a few minutes. I guess if you've got comments or thoughts on this, um, please uh, feel free. If not, there's Chris. Excellent. (laughs) So.